Morning, church. How are we doing today? Doing good. It's basically spring. I don't know if it's officially here, but it sure does feel like it. So I know I'm a bit more peppy and excited this morning, and I'm sure some of you are too. But hey, real quick, I just want to take a moment and acknowledge we are ending our Luke series today. Uh, and we kind of entered a season here that none of us expected, right? Uh, uh, a few months back, uh, ben and I started taking the stage a lot more frequently, and we are coming to the end of that stretch of time. And I just wanted to take a moment and thank you guys for welcoming us into this space, for being really, really kind to us, because I understand that that season was kind of crazy for all of us, right? We were all undergoing transition, um, but we made it. We are here. I wanted to thank you guys for that. That is something that we can clap for, of course. It's been an honor and a, a blessing, true honor for, for me to have this space to share with you guys. So I thank you so much for that. Um, we're obviously really excited for what is to come, uh, but also I did want to acknowledge you guys dealt with a lot of terrible jokes that me and Ben gave, and I'm sure if we brought the G.I. Joe doll up one more time, there would have been like an exodus in the church. Uh, so very glad that y'all even endured through those really difficult times, right? Um, it goes without saying that we are so excited for the next chapter of our church. We're so excited for what God has in store for the CLC, and we're so excited to, to follow the leadership of Bob Myers as he makes his way in here. So we're so excited, right? I did want to share a brief update, however. Uh, we did previously communicate that Bob would be starting next Sunday. That's March 27th. We're actually po postponing that one more week, and Ben is going to be with us uh, next week. And the reason being, and the reason why we want, we want to ask you all to be in prayer for Bob and Liz, is Bob actually reached out to the elders and the staff this week that while they were in Kenya, his brother had passed away. And so we want to just be praying for that family. In fact, what I want us to do right now is we're just going to take a moment and pray for Bob because, you know, grief already on its own is difficult, but to start at a whole new setting, a new context, is just a whole other layer. And so if you would, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for what you've done in this season. We are so grateful uh, for Bob making his way, Bob and Liz making their way here to the CLC, that you are faithful, uh, that you are a God of, of goodness in all seasons. And so, God, we, we uplift the Myers family right now. We, we pray for, for John, who, who passed away. God, we pray for Bob and Liz and their kids and their family, that as they navigate the season, that they could have that space to grieve, that they could work through their grief. But God, and they could celebrate a life well lived. John loved you, and you love John, and so we trust that John is more alive today than he ever was here, and so God, we're so grateful for that. So we celebrate that, but again, we mourn, and we just pray that you be with the Myers in the season as they journey through this, as they make their way to the Christian Life Center. We just pray that your hand would be on that. God, in addition, we want to recognize and, and pray for what's happening in our wor world right now in Ukraine. God, there's a war that is devastating families that is taking lives of innocent people, that is taking so much from so many. God, we just pray very specifically for peace. We pray very specifically that you would reach your hand in and change hearts and do something to bring about peace in this land. 
We pray that you use people, you use civilians, you use people on both sides to be agents of peace to bring this about in Ukraine and in Russia. God, we just pray that your hand would be on that. And God, we pray that you were glorified. And even if we don't see peace immediately, God, we still pray for that. We still ask that. But God, we know that your plans are incredible, even when we can't comprehend them. Even when we get mad as they unfold, God, we just pray that your hand would be in this. And so God, we lift all of these things up to you, and we pray this in your holy name. Amen. All right, so this is it. Today, we end our series in Luke. Guys, we've been in this series for quite a long time. I know Ben talked about it last week. We've gone through 11 different sermon series through Luke. I was going to list them all, but it would have it been really annoying for me just to read through 11 different sermon series, right? 11 different sermon series, and today is the 87th and final week of our being in the book of Luke. This is a really big deal. Like the book of Luke in this church at the CLC is a huge deal, so much so that there is a baby, a child, a toddler in this church named after this series. I'm not kidding. You all know them. The McNaughtons welcomed their second child during this series, and they named him Luke. And I kid you not, if you ask them, they're sitting in the back. If you ask them, why do you, you know, what was the motivation behind naming your kid? Like 10 years from now, if you ask him, they'll give you two reasons. The first one, well, our church was going through this series called Luke, and so we thought, hey, that was a great name. But the second reason why is because Theophilus just didn't have the, the nice ring to it, right? And so they landed with Luke, right? So this is a big deal for our church. We've been here for quite a while, right? I, I was trying to do the math. It was hard to pin it down. But all of us together have probably spent close to 100 hours in the book of Luke. About 100 hours studying these words. About 100 hours wrestling with the text and the question I want to ask is why? It's a lot of time to spend that we'll never get back. Why do we wrestle with this text? What is the point for us spending so much time listening to these words in Luke? And that is the question that I want to wrestle with with you all today. Is as a result of this text, what would Jesus have us do? As a result of these words, what would Jesus have us do? And in order to do this, I actually wanted to remind us why the book was written, right? We're going to go all the way back to Luke 1 just for a moment. Because uh, we remember this account was written down by Luke, right? Because traditionally back then, they would pass down stories orally. And so Luke is like, I want to get pen to paper. I want to document this because this is too important, right? And so in the beginning of Luke, we find why it is that he wrote the story down. In Luke 1, uh, verse 3, it says this, I too decided after investigating everything carefully from the very first to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. He writes this book. He does all of this homework so that we might have truth. So that we might have certainty. So that we might have clarity, right? However, I would argue that that's not the end goal. Just truth, that's not a complete end goal. I think we're missing the whole objective here. And I'll explain why in a moment, but I want to tell you a story. 
Uh, when I lived in Tennessee, me and my wife had an apartment there, and she was trying to, she tries to make me eat healthy food. It's really overwhelming sometimes. Anyone else experience that, right? Couple of hands. Yeah, this is a safe place, guys. Um, she was trying to make me eat a grape, and I was like, I don't want the stinking grape, right? And so she gives me this grape, and it's just a texture thing. I can't do it, right? So uh, she walks away, and I'm like, I'm giving it to the dog. And so I start giving the grape to the dog. And my dog, like a good dog, is like, I'm not eating that grape, right? Um, but I did what any normal person would do, and I'm like, eat the stinking grape. And so I, I force-fed her for some reason this grape, and I'm like, she ate the grape. We're good. And then uh, a couple of minutes later, she throws the bedroom door open because I'm in the living room, and she's like, Belle's going to die. <laughs> Belle, our dog's going to die because she looked up online that grapes, just one grape, could kill a dog. And so my heart sunk. <laughs> and I have this moment of panic, and I'm like, what do we do? Like, I don't know. I can't get the grape out of her. Like, I don't know what to do, right? So we called an emergency clinic. They told us how we could induce vomiting and do all that fun stuff. And so eventually she threw up the grape, and things were safe. But the whole story is to identify this point that once we come across truth, once we come across something that we know to be true, we should act differently, right? We should respond. I no longer give my dog grapes, right? Because I've understood the truth that grape, grapes are not good for a dog. I put them on, I just tell my wife, let's not buy them. No one needs grapes, right? No one needs them. Truth should bear impact on our life. It should change us. So I'm ha having a hard time believing that the book of Luke is just so that we would have truth, just so that we would have awareness, right? Because he's capturing all these details meticulously and captures them. It's not so that we could just add it to our notes on a Sunday morning. It's not so we could write it in the margins of our Bible, but it's so that it would change the very fabric of our lives, right? It's not so that we'd sit back and continue in our rhythm as bystanders of the gospel, right? No, it's that we would be so compelled by such certainty, by truth, by such a story to participate in the kingdom of God today, right? Such truth should compel us to do something differently. And this is a theme we see in the book of Luke, right? This is a theme that we see where faithful understanding should naturally lead to faithful participation, right? When, when we see people in the Bible, it clicks for them. They understand. They get it. They do something about it, right? And I want us to be a church that does something about it. Not just sitting and taking it all in. That's good. It's important that we understand this. But let's be a church that does something about it. And if such an end isn't the outcome, right, if, if we all listen to this and it doesn't change anything, I would argue that maybe the 87 weeks that we've been journeying through this have been for naught, right? I don't want that to be the case, and I'm confident that, there, that we all don't want that to be the case, right? And so today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to wrestle with, in light of this book, what would Jesus have us do? today. Not tomorrow, not down the road when I feel confident enough or when I have all my stuff together, which we never will. That's okay, right? But what can I do today to participate in what God has for me, right? And so before we jump in, I'm just going to pray over the sermon. So let's pray together. God, we ask that you give us clarity this morning. May we be good stewards and trustees of your word that we might bring about your kingdom on earth today. Thanks for being so gracious enough to invite broken, messy, and selfish people like us into a, the beautiful act of redemption and restoration that you are doing in your world. May your spirit move in us to be a church 
May your very words grip our hearts and transform us. May you clothe us with courage enough to respond accordingly. We love you. Thank you for loving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as you know, um, we've not done every single chapter in Luke. You guys got us. Uh, we did miss about four chapters to bring this, uh, this book to an end, so I invite you to read it. But I'm going to be employing a piece of advice that one of my grad professors gave me. He said, you don't really have to read every single book. If you read the beginning, skim a little bit through the middle, and then read the end. Most times, nine out of ten, you're good. Now high school students up in the balcony... I'm not recommending that you go home and say, Christian says I don't have to read anymore. That's not it at all. This is just for expediency's sake. So just wanted to provide clarity there. So we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. We're jumping to the end here. And what Luke's trying to do, he's trying to tie up some loose ends, right? He's preparing for his sequel because, yes, there is a sequel. It is the book of Acts, which Luke also wrote. The book of Luke is all about the Acts and the life of Jesus. And the book of Acts is all about the Acts and the life of the church in light of Jesus. So he's trying to set up that book, right? And throughout the book of Luke, we've come back to this time and time again over the last 87 weeks. Jesus is painting a picture for the kingdom of heaven. That it started in Eden, sin messed that up, but now God's plan is to bring heaven back to earth so that we can all experience that Eden communion with him again. That we can coexist in the very presence of God, overflowing with joy, peace, everything our heart is yearning for, right? And so we see this in the book of Luke. And so part of that major plan is that Jesus would die and be resurrected. That he would go to the cross and come back to life. And so in Luke 24, this would have happened already. Jesus would have gone to the cross, and Jesus would be resurrected, right? And so right before uh, chapter 24, we have this picture, this story of these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And as they're journeying, this, this guy comes up to him and starts talking to him. And it's Jesus. And they just don't even recognize it. It doesn't click in their mind that Jesus is alive and he's here, right? And so they're journeying, and Jesus is like, what are you guys talking about? And it's funny, the scripture says that they stood there sad because the guy they'd been following for years was dead, right? And so they stood there sad. They didn't recognize that Jesus was in their midst, right? They keep journeying. They actually share a meal together. Jesus breaks bread and gives it to them, and it clicks. You're Jesus. Oh my gosh, you're here, right? So they have this moment of revelation. They realize Jesus is alive. They are celebrating. And Jesus then departs, and they run back to the rest of the disciples. They're running to the disciples to say, Jesus is alive. Like, he's here. And that's where we find ourselves in chapter 24, verse 36. Let's take a look. While they were talking about this, right, the two disciples telling them that Jesus is alive, while they were talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled. And terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. And he said to them, Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Right? So they were just receiving news that Jesus was alive. And then Jesus shows up. And so you might ask, like, why are you guys terrified? Like, you knew, you, you were just talking that Jesus was alive. Why are you terrified right now? And I think if we look at the, the multiple gospels here, they provide clarity. Because in John's account, he says the doors were locked. You see, the disciples had been in hiding. 
because Jesus was crucified, they were afraid that they were next. So they were hiding so that they would not be killed, right? By, just by association of Jesus, association with this Jesus movement. So they were in hiding. John's account says the doors were locked, and somehow Jesus appeared, right? He just appeared in the room while the doors were locked. It's not like that clip from The Shining where he's breaking down the door with the axe. It's not that terrifying. It's a different kind of terrifying. The door was locked, and somehow Jesus is in the room. And he says, peace be with you. I'm sorry, but if, if I were in that moment and some guy I presumed to be dead appeared in a room while the doors are locked, peace would not be my first inclination, right? I would not feel very peaceful. I would feel overwhelmed. And this was the experience of the disciples. They were terrified. Maybe it's because they didn't expect, it just didn't register that Jesus could really be alive. Right? And so this, this man was in their midst. Jesus was in their midst, and they thought that it was a ghost. Jesus responds, why? Why are you frightened? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Did you so quickly abandon the possibility of my resurrection? Right? Now, I don't know if y'all notice this here. This is a book about certainty, right? A book about truth. But multiple times in the book, we have stories of people being uncertain, right? Right in Zechariah 1, Zechariah was uncertain that Elizabeth could ever have a child, and so he was uncertain, right? Throughout the whole gospel, we have story after story of the disciples just not getting it, of them being uncertain, right? And here at the very end, we have another moment of uncertainty. And so what I wanted to do is I actually want to camp out here for a moment and talk about doubt. What role does doubt have in our lives as Christians if any at all, right? What role does doubt have in our lives? Because it seems like they're experiencing it, so I'm sure some of us experience it, right? So I'm going to camp out here for a moment, <coughs> excuse me, uh, and offer my personal take on doubt, right? So oftentimes as church, as a, as a church, you know, the church, the global church, sometimes we're afraid to wrestle with doubt, and so we treat it as this, um, this taboo thing, right? It's shameful to ask those questions. Like, you can't ask that question to the scriptures, you're not allowed to ask that question of God. Like, why would you ask that? And so we kind of treat doubt like this no-no. Like, never, ever navigate through that, right? However, personally, I would argue that that's why a lot of young Christians leave the church. It's not because they have doubt. but It's just because they don't have a safe place to wrestle with those doubts, right? I would argue that we find that with a lot of people who are developing cognitively, asking very honest, candid questions, that if they don't have a space to do that, that's what pushes them out, not just their doubts, not their doubts, right? And so personally, I hold, it's just my, my I'm not reading into the scriptures, trying not to, right? I hold that doubt can actually be a catalyst for faith if we let it, right? I'm convinced that doubt is a product of our being finite people, meaning we can't comprehend everything. We have limited mental capacities, and doubt is just a natural byproduct of our being finite, right? Like right now, we're all sitting on a blue speck in the middle of nothingness, right? That's terrifying. We're sitting on this blue planet, this beautiful planet, in the middle of a vast universe. And this blue speck is spinning at about a thousand miles an hour, right? That's terrifying to think about, right? Our bodies are so wonderful and so complex that the presence or the absence of a myriad of cells could be life or death for us, right? 
These are things that we just can't comprehend, things that we can't understand, and so naturally questions come about. The world is so complex and beautiful and wonderful that we can't comprehend it. And sometimes we humans like clarity. We like to know the answers for things, right? Things that we can't explain. And so we ask questions. It's a natural byproduct of being finite humans, right? We were actually talking about this uh, during Tuesday night's rehearsal uh, for the band. We rehearsed on Tuesday nights. Right in this room, we were talking about just how complex and beautiful the world is. And Eric Blom, when he was praying for our rehearsal, he called these things the wonders that we can't explain, right? The world is full of wonders that we just can't explain. We can't pin it down, right? And occasionally we come across wonders with God right? God is so big, so infinite, so profound, that it is natural that we can't comprehend him all the way. We can't pin God down, and we should find comfort in that church, because if I could pin God down, how small of a God would we have? I wouldn't want to worship a small God, and so with our being finite, we have questions that might remain unanswered. It's not a bad thing, that we come across these things. It is a natural thing. Now what's important then is how we handle it. There's two primary ways that I want to maybe present to us on how we navigate doubt, how we handle doubt, because one of them could be such a great nourishing thing for our faith, but another way to handle it can be a bit more devastating, right? And so doubt, not bad, it's natural, it's how we handle that. So when I'm talking to my students about doubt, I often employ the, the, the car metaphor. This is a car. It's not a car. It's just two car seats. Um, we couldn't get a car through the door, and I think Jeff Pinson would have been mad at me. So we have two car seats right here on stage, and they are going to represent our life. The car is our life, and the seats in the car are our minds. However, there's one seat in the front, the driver's seat, that represents our heart, Okay? We have two seats in the car. One represents our mind. One, or sorry, we have many seats for the mind, but there's one seat, the driver's seat, that represents the heart, right? If I'm sitting in the passenger seat, I'm not driving the car. I can bark orders from the back, but I don't have control of the car. If I'm sitting in the driver's seat, however, in the heart, it is the seat of decision-making. Whoever's sitting in this seat determines the direction of the car, the direction of my life, right? The decisions we make in the heart determine the directions of our life. So this is a very important seat, right? Anyone could sit in a passenger seat. They could be really annoying, telling you where to turn, telling you how great or bad you're driving. My wife usually tells me how bad I'm driving. But this seat does not determine the impact or the direction of the car. Only the driver's seat, the heart, right? So the whole car is the mind, except the driver's seat is the heart. So it's really important then who we let sit in the driver's seat, right? I don't go out in the parking lot and I don't see any of you putting your kids in the driver's seat, right? It'd be a problem if you did, right? There's a reason for that. We're very meticulous about who is allowed to sit in the driver's seat, in the seat of decision-making, right? And so life is a natural journey where we're driving, picking up passengers. We're picking up doubt in its various forms. Could be doubt in the form of questions, just things I can't wrap my mind around. Questions that I have about God, like this doesn't make sense. 
That's the doubt that we pick up. It could come in the form of circumstances. Sometimes life circumstances cause us to doubt. If God's so good, why did this happen to my loved one? Right? And we pick up doubt in the form of circumstances, of pain, of heart, heartbreak, all of these things, right? It's not bad that they end up in the car. It's only bad if they end up in the driver's seat, right? It's not bad that naturally with our being human, we wrestle with things that are far greater than us, far more mysterious than we can comprehend, right? And if we're being honest about it, right? Doubt is a very honest process, coming face to face with the wonders that we cannot explain, right? And so if we can honestly work through these things, that is okay, so long as they stay in the passenger seat. If we keep them in the passenger seat, what a beautiful catalyst for faith, right? Y'all have driven with like, you know, maybe kids barking in the back seat, right? The fact that you can stay your course with your doubt in the back seat hollering at you, what a beautiful picture of what faith is, right? The fact that you can chart your course and pursue Jesus despite all the pain, what a beautiful, beautiful picture of faith. The only problem then is when doubt makes its way into the driver's seat. When we render control, when we give it up and say, you can take that, I, I don't want it, right? And we let our doubt drive us. We let our doubt make our decisions for us and chart our course, right? I often say when doubt is in the car, it leads to one of two destinations, either deep belief or disbelief, right? Doubt will lead us to either deep belief, so beautiful and profound for our faith, or it will lead us to a place of disbelief where we're throwing in the towel, right? And it all depends on what seat it's sitting in, whether it's just our minds or if it's landed in our hearts, right? The goal, however, is deep faith. That's why we have a, a no-question-off-limits policy in the student ministry. Students are allowed to ask whatever question they want. If they say, hey, can I ask this? We have to say yes by law, right? By our policy, we say yes, even if we don't want to go down that, you know, rabbit hole of questions. We always say yes, right? That's why the writer of Hebrews defines faith in Hebrews 11 as being certain of what we do not see. It's kind of a paradox, is it? being certain of that which we cannot see. The practice of charting forward amidst the unknown. That's why in Proverbs, in Proverbs 3, they liken faith to leaning not on your own understanding. You're leaning not on what you can comprehend. You're not leaning on the answers that you have, but you are leaning into the questions and leaning on Jesus, right? It's the practice of leaning in on not what we can comprehend and understand, but leaning into Jesus amidst the mystery and the confusion, right? Faith is pressing on amidst the wonders that we just can't explain. Bob Goff is an author and a speaker, uh, writes it this way. The way we deal with uncertainty says a lot about whether Jesus is ahead of us leading or behind us just carrying our stuff, right? What seat do our questions sit in? What seat does our doubt sit in? Because it's not bad that they're in the car so long as they're not landing in our hearts. And so Jesus says, why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why does your doubt drive you, not your faith? Doubt settled in their hearts in the driver's seat, and it brought them to a place of disbelief. So much so that when Jesus was actually there, like he said he'd be, they are confused, they are bewildered. They are terrified, right? 
They'd been obeying their doubts, not obeying their faith. And so here in this moment, Jesus asked them, why has doubt arisen in your hearts? But yet Jesus constantly, even with us, so gracious, so gracious in his response. He so graciously, occasionally, for us, even in our doubts, provides moments of clarity. Sometimes we get that moment of clarity, like, ah, it made sense now, right? So sometimes Jesus so graciously provides that moment of clarity, and he does so right here in verse 39. <clears throat> he says, look at my hands and my feet. See that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. While in their joy they were disbelieving and still wondering, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate in their presence. Jesus so graciously in this moment provides clarity, which sometimes he'll do, right? Sometimes he gives us a gift of clarity, and when we don't have that gift of clarity, hopefully we get the gift of faith to press on anyway, right? And so in this moment, they get a gift of clarity that comes in the form of hearing. They're hearing him talking. Sight, right? They can see him, but then touch, right? Luke is a physician, so he records this in the text, right? And he says, he records this detail where Jesus invites them, touch my hands and feet, you know, where the nails had gone in. Touch and realize that I am not a spirit. I am here. I'm not a dead body with life. I'm not a soul with no body. I'm a body that's been resurrected and restored. Touch and see that it is I and that I'm here, right? And so they're still kind of confused, right? And maybe it's clicking for some of them. We've been here before. We're like, we say, it's too good to be true. Like, this is too good to believe. I don't understand it. I still can't believe it, right? And so Jesus is like, hey, give me something to eat, which is great. I think this is endorsing that we can just always ask for food when we're in a trying moment, right? Jesus says, give me something to eat. And he eats a fish because spirits can't eat food, right? Only a human can eat. And so Jesus' response verified that he's been resurrected, that he is back, that he has beat death, right? This is the same guy that we journeyed with all those years. This is him. Like, this isn't a clone. This isn't someone else. This is that guy. And the passage continues, verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Right? And so he's reminding them, why, why do you guys doubt? Like, I told you about all this, right? I told you this was going to happen. That everything in the Psalms, the prophets, the Proverbs, everything, the prophets, all of that had to be fulfilled, right? That's his way of saying the entire Old Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to what is happening here. That God is bringing heaven to earth. That God is redeeming and restoring everything that is broken. And in order for that to take place, things have to happen. He says everything has to be fulfilled. So let's see what he's talking about. Verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And I want to pause here actually real quick for a moment. I love this. He opened their mind to understand the scriptures. This is why we pray when we read the scriptures, because I'm broken enough, I'm sinful enough, prideful and arrogant enough to think that I know anything about this stuff, right? 
what we're doing is we're asking that God would give us the gift of revelation. God, please use your word to reveal something to me, right? And so when we pray, we're, we're asking God, let us be good stewards of this, but we believe that every time God reveals stuff to us from the scriptures, it's a gift that needs to be cherished. And so that's why we ask God to reveal these things to us. And so this is what he does in 45. He says, he, it, oh, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. This is it. This is it. This is the moment we've been waiting for in the book of Luke, right? Again, truth should make us do something different, okay? Jesus reminds them. Remember before all this happened, before I left, I told you these things were going to happen. And the, the big plan to bring heaven to earth required that I go to the cross, that the Messiah would suffer and die. We see that. Check. We all can verify that that happened. The second thing that was to happen was that the, the Messiah was to be resurrected, to come back to life, to beat death, right? You just in this moment verified that that happened. Check, right? And the third thing is that repentance and forgiveness of sins be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, starting in Jerusalem. This is the third thing to be fulfilled. And if you notice what's going on, it is yet to be fulfilled, right? Because the disciples, when Jesus was killed, they locked themselves in a room. They hid, right? So Jesus is shedding light on his plan and our role in that plan. Jesus is shedding light on God's big plan to redeem and restore everything that is, that is broken. And he's inviting us to see this is your part. He's handing the baton off. And he's saying this is your part. Remember, truth and certainty, we don't just receive it and sit and do nothing. If it's true that Jesus died, and if it's true that he came back to life, which we see here it is, he verifies that with the disciples, then we should do something about it. This is too good to stay still, right? And so Jesus lets us know what it looks like for us to respond. And this is it. This is what Jesus and what Luke are getting at is that Jesus started establishing his kingdom here on earth through his death and resurrection and now invites us to continue his work as we wait for heaven to come to earth in fullness, right? This is the task for all believers at all times. So just break that down. Let's talk about Christian. It, makes, it doesn't make sense. What are we supposed to do, right? In light of the gospel account, we're invited to proclaim repentance and forgiveness. This is what Jesus has been teaching all along. Repentance literally means just to change your mind, right? It's to reorient your life. I'm not going to build my kingdom that's fleeting. I'm not going to pursue all these things that a hundred years from now won't matter. I'm going to reorient my life, and it's something we do after experiencing an incredible transforming love of God, right? We repent and God's faithful to forgive, right? We just change our mind, and God's like, thank you for getting it. Like, I want you to participate in this, right? So we repent. Christ forgives us. 
because he's loving and he's in a compassionate God. And then we reorient our lives to participate in what God is doing, right? We abandon our kingdoms and we participate in the re redemption and restoration of all things. Then we proclaim these things in whose name? Not a dead Messiah, but a resurrected Messiah, right? This is a better name than Herod, better name than Caesar, better name than any Republican or Democrat candidate that we want to put our faith into. This is the name above all names. So we proclaim this good news in the name of Jesus, a guy who beat death, right? A God who beat death. And it's good news for who? For all. But Jesus kind of adds a little note. It's for all people, all nations, but I want you to start in Jerusalem, right? This is the state that murdered Jesus, right? This is the state that the disciples, while they were in, they were in hiding. And Jesus says, I want you to start there with the very people who crucified me. I want to show them compassion and grace, right? Jesus wants them to go to his murderers to proclaim repentance and forgiveness of sins, to proclaim that there's a mercy great enough, that there's a forgiveness that's endless enough, that, is there, that there's a love that never runs dry, ever, right? Proclaim that in Jerusalem, then proclaim it in the world. And that's why churches are here today. It's to proclaim it, not just to ourselves, right? Many of us know this, but it's to go out and proclaim it to all people. This is what Christ and what Luke would have us do. And the greatest individuals to do it are witnesses, right? People who have experienced the goodness of God. People who have tasted and seen the goodness of God, right? I, um, I used to live in Tennessee, as many of you know, and there's a place in Nashville called San Antonio Tacos. The best tacos I've ever had in my life, okay? I would tell people, if I know someone's going to Nashville, I'll say, you have to go to San Antonio Tacos. Like, I'm pretty sure it's a sin to go to Nashville and not go to San Antonio Tacos, right? It is high caliber. Like I'm saying it's in Hebrews or something. If you go to Nashville, you have to go to San Antonio Tacos, right? When we've experienced something so good, the only natural outcome is that we tell people about it, right? Is that we are compelled enough to say, you have to experience this incredible thing. God loves us so much, you have to experience the freedom that is in Christ, right? And the, the best people to do this are witnesses, are people who have experienced these things. If we've truly experienced something so profound, Jesus dead and resurrected, we naturally tell people about it. We proclaim the good news, right? And sometimes the best and most trustworthy witnesses are those who had previously doubted, right? Those who had previously had questions. Those who were previously suspicious, they make for the most compelling witnesses. And that's why Jesus is so, so gracious in our questioning, right? This is what Jesus would have us do, church. Through service, through giving to our community, through welcoming in the stranger, it's to help them taste and see that God is good, right? This is what Luke is inviting us to. And I would argue that this is the only natural response to, the profound, to this profound story that we believe changes everything, right? And guess what? We don't do it alone. We don't have to do it alone. While Jesus is about to leave, he actually reminds them, I want to remind you of the promise that the Father has given you. Let's read verse 49. And see, 
I'm sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. As you may have noticed, I'm kind of dressed down today. <laughs> I'm wearing an eagle sweater. Uh, there's two reasons for that. First reason was I actually, um, I wore the same outfit <laughs> four times preaching here, and now one of you guys told me about it. Uh, we have a picture of it, actually. I wore the same outfit four times preaching, and uh, I'm so original. And I get home one day, and my wife is like, you know, you've been wearing that a lot. I'm like, really? I have? And so I look back. I'm like, oh, my gosh. So, guys, if I do that, please, like, write a comment card or something. Like, Lord have mercy, right? That's the first reason why I wore this. But the second reason, that sweater and this sweater were my dad's sweaters. Sorry, I practice this a lot and never cried. Um, as many of you know, my dad died from cancer. I love wearing his stuff. This is a picture of him on his birthday. It was the day after the Eagles won the Super Bowl. Um, and I flew in just to hang out with him for his birthday. And I bought him that sweater. And I love wearing that sweater because it makes me feel close to my dad. But I love wearing the clothes of the father. I love wearing my father's clothes. I actually brought, um, brought a couple other things. I have here his, uh, his Harley jacket. I love wearing this thing. I wear it when I ride, right? He wore it. I also have uh, with me his cap, his Harley cap, right? I, I, I've had his watch for quite a while. I've been wearing that. And then on this arm, you've seen me in the last four years at all, uh, this bracelet's been on my wrist every day for just about four years now. This is a bracelet uh, for cancer that my dad gave me. It says, no one fights alone. That's the promise of the Father, right? That we are not alone. That we don't have to do this alone. That God has promised that we're going to be clothed with the power of the Father, Right? We don't have to work ourselves into right standing. A lot of times, Christians do that. We think we have to make ourselves right. We have to get up by our bootstraps and muster up something in us, but that's not it. All we have to do is sit and just wait and receive transforming power from the Father. To be clothed with power from the Father that God might transform us through his word, through community, and through the power of his spirit, right? We don't have to do it ourselves. Out of love for the Father, we just sit and receive this gift he has for us to be constantly clothed and transformed into his likeness so that we may bring about transformation to the world. We're not alone. We're we are clothed with the power of compassion in a world that often lacks it. In a world of war, we are clothed with power of peace. Here's a picture that was taken in the last few weeks, actually. There's a Russian soldier who surrendered. And there's a Ukrainian civilians giving him tea and food and helping him FaceTime his mom. We are clothed with the power of peace in a world of war. We are not alone. We are clothed with the power of patience 
We are not alone. We are clothed with the power of kindness, radical self-giving and self-sacrificing love, of courage and faith when we are wrestling with our doubts. The Father has promised to us we are not alone. He will clothe us with whatever we need. And that's what Jesus tells the disciples. We're clothed by the Father, not to earn the Father's love, but because we love the Father, right? All we need is just to constantly come back and encounter Jesus. It could be through community. It could be through church on Sundays, through Scripture, right? It's just constantly encountering the Father and letting him transform us. And this is central. This is central to our building the kingdom of heaven. This is central to build the kingdom that we are anticipating, that we will one day fully inherit. And I would argue that the opposite is true too. I would argue, um, I would argue that the worst witness of the church, of which I'm guilty, is boasting to be clothed in the clothes of the Father, but not looking anything like the Father, right? Sometimes the church, I think we think that our role is to, to major in behavior modification or condemnation and not just to teach a gospel of freedom and transformation, right? I have many friends my age who are not part of the church anymore because, man, that was what they experienced, right? Breaks my heart, but a lot of people with good, good, good reason don't have certainty in Jesus. And man, I want that to change, right? That is the calling that God has on our lives to proclaim. It's good news. It's good news for all people, right? To proclaim that that is the case, right? And so God, may we slow down and may we just be clothed in your power. May we receive that power, right? Jesus finished these sayings uh, and it brings us to the end. He's about to bring them out of Jerusalem. <clears throat> and here are the last words in the Gospel of Luke. Verse 50. Then he led them out as far as Bethany and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. Jesus leads them to Bethany. If you know anything about the geography of that area, Bethany was east of Jerusalem. So they would have most likely passed the area where the garden was. Remember Gethsemane which the last time a lot of these disciples really saw Jesus was when he departed Gethsemane to his death. But now they follow him to a similar area to watch Jesus depart into glory, right? And the cool part is, is he speaks a blessing over them, but then he, he leaves as mysteriously as he came that day, right? He just showed up in the room, but now he's carried heavenward. And their response this time isn't confusion. They're not like, that surely wasn't Jesus because people can't do that, right? They didn't think that they weren't concerned, but rather they had great joy. The Greek word for great is mega. They had mega joy when Jesus was lifted up heavenward. And they didn't just stay there. They did something about it. The truth of Jesus being alive motivated them enough, was so compelling to them that they couldn't help but go back to Jerusalem into the temple to bless God 
every single day, right? They went back to the temple to bless God, to sing. They proclaimed the good news in word and deed. And we see this is the whole book of Acts, right? This is the sequel that Luke writes of this movement starting to take place. This was the only natural byproduct. They couldn't help themselves, right? They couldn't help themselves but do this. The good news is too good not to share. So they took a risk. Remember, people were still out hunting for them. They were still not out of the woods in terms of danger, and so they couldn't help themselves. What if we were a church that just couldn't help ourselves? (laughs) That we exercised ridiculous compassion to the point where other people are like, something's wrong with those people at the CLC. They're too compassionate. What if we exercise ridiculous, self-sacrificing love? Something's really wrong with those people at the CLC. They love people too much. They're too forgiving. They're too gracious, right? What if we just couldn't help ourselves? What if we just couldn't help but proclaim the good news with our very lives, right? Is the gospel that good for us? Is the good news that good for us? And if it isn't, I would ask whether we really sat with the story, right? So this is it. We're done, Luke. In light of this account, what does Luke, what does Jesus invite us to do? That we, clothed in the power, the love, and the kindness of our Father, may bear witness in both word and deed, more so deed, to the endless love of our Father who's bringing heaven to earth and redeeming and restoring all things. May we invite ourselves, our kids, our teenagers, and our communities along as well. Amen? Amen. I'm going to invite the band up. Um, What we're going to do, the whole gospel is about, what do we do? Like, responding, right? The whole gospel, Luke writes his account and sets up this story to compel us enough, doubt and all, to compel us enough to do something about it. And so I'm going to pray a prayer, and this is a prayer for anybody. Maybe you've been in the church for a while, and you're like, me and Jesus, we're tight. (laughs) I go to church, you got my community group. This is a prayer for you to evaluate our participating in this. Maybe you're in the church, and maybe you got doubt in the passenger seat, or maybe you got doubt in the driver's seat, and doubt's been driving for quite a while, and you don't want to stay there. This is a prayer for you to respond and to lean into what God has for you, to exercise that faith, right? And maybe for those of you who have never, never really had faith in the driver's seat to begin with, this is a prayer for you that we might participate in the good news that God is making all things right and that the best is truly yet to come. So I'm going to pray this prayer. I invite you to make it your own. Pray, pray in your own words, but I just invite you to respond. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you are a good God. Even in the middle of a, a, a world right now torn by war, torn by hatred, torn by anger and frustration, we still declare that there's good news to be shared. And God, right now we confess that we've not participated. We, we confess that we've tried to build our own kingdoms, that we've tried to do things our own way, and it's just not been working. We've tried to do all these things to realize that we are really bad at being God over our lives. And so God, we just confess these things to you, that we've fallen short of your glory, that we've failed. But God, you're a good God, and you offer us the gift of salvation. 
the gift of new life, the gift to participate in something you've started but have yet to finish. So God, we respond. Whether we have been part of this journey for a while or maybe we've been doubting for quite some time or maybe we just want to remind ourselves of what it looks like to participate. God, this is our prayer that we just receive this gift, that we would trust that you're clothing us with power from on high and that you are making us new each and every day as we march heavenward. God, enable us to bring other people along. May we not stay stagnant. God, may we partner with community. May we wrestle with doubt with friends. And may we pursue heaven together. May we pursue you in all things. God, we love you. Thanks for loving us. We praise your name. Amen. We're going to finish with a song. I actually requested this one. This one's called The Way. It's actually a song of celebration. It's a bit more upbeat. Uh, if you see in the book of Acts, which was Luke's second book, uh, we find that the early Christians were called followers of the way. Because Jesus had made a way where there was no way. So Jesus is the way. And so as we sing this song, it is a song of declaration. It is a song of um, celebration. That we can celebrate what it is that God has done. Amen? I invite you all to stand and sing with us at this time. Yes. Yeah.
something worth celebrating. Will we celebrate, right? We hope that this is a place where we can all celebrate together, struggle together, doubts and alls, everything in between. That is what the church is about, right? And so we hope that this good news compels us enough to partake in that, right? I believe in community that the, the one of the only, at least for me, sustainable ways that I can keep charting the course is to have other friends in the car, to have people that I love that speak life into me, to have that group, that community uh, to pray over me. And so we want to extend that invitation to you all, whether or not maybe this is the beginning of the journey for you, maybe it's the middle, or maybe you've been here for a while, right? We want to extend that invitation. So up front, we have some wonderful people who uh, would like to pray with you. Uh, we have Rosalie and Patty here, and then outside we have Laurel, who, uh, for anyone in the parking lot who would like to pray with someone, you can pray with any of them. If you just need to talk with someone, it could be someone you know, anyone, we just invite you to take that step of courage to respond to this good news. Um, the best is yet to come, church. That's worth celebrating, that's worth singing about, even amidst all the chaos and confusion. And so, I send you out. Hopefully with the blessing of the Father over you, but I invite you to find those moments of stillness where you can receive power from on high to proclaim the good news to all people. Amen? Amen. We love you guys. Have a great week. We'll see you soon. Ooh,